would have saved all of moment. that from bloopers. <laughs> that was grade A content. <laughs> we'll start with that then. <laughs> all right. And welcome, everybody, to the Down in Front podcast. Yeah. Let me hear it, guys. How you doing? Yeah. But yeah, we're glad to be here with all of you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Um, today, we are going to be talking to you about the latest sci-fi thriller um, called Blade Runner 2049, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Um, my apologies to all of my friend, all of our French listeners, in case I butchered that. Um, but this well, is well, he's Quebecois, so it's your French Canadian listeners you gotta worry about. You could have told me that meant anything, and I would have believed you. <laughs> <laughs> but um. But yeah, Blade Runner 2049 is the sequel to the 1982 movie Blade Runner, sort of a, a cult classic that's built a following over the decades since its release. Now, 35 years later, we're getting a film that takes place 30 years after the original. Um, this movie has had an interesting opening weekend with a pr- some pretty uh, divisive comments towards it, not as badly as I'd say for Mother, but definitely has um, people generating opinions on both sides. So I'm really excited to see what kind of conversation comes out of the three of us talking about it. Um, but yeah, I am here. I'm your host, Mocha Mike. And I'm here with the beautiful, the gorgeous, the perfect, but infinitely more jacked Mike Blewett. They can't see you. Mike Blewett, everybody. I have huge muscles. It's true. But don't yeah. look me up on the internet because... It deceives you. Uh, Photography is a lie. Um, So, anyways, I'm doing fantastic right now. I would just like to say, uh, pairing with the usual flow of this, uh, I'm drinking a craft beer right now from Stony Joe, which I've never heard of, called Golden Mocha Stout. And if I don't know anything to describe Mocha Mike except for Golden and Stout. So I'm basically drinking Mike right now. <laughs> Get in line, That could be taking a lot of... Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like that phrasing might need a little work, but it's how I, you know, feel. And that's important. Yeah, it needs some work. I need to say it uh, again, but just slower. I'm drinking Mike. Mm-hmm. That was not... That was not in... Like, that was not innuendo-ish at all. That was, like, just terrible. Listen, they don't come for the for the subtlety. They want the cold hard facts <laughs> they just, regarding Mike drinking. The down the front um, podcast. <laughs> but that's awesome. I'm glad you're drinking some mocha. Uh, what have you been watching lately, Blewett, if anything? Oh yeah, so I got I got uh, two things. One I wanna talk about, one I don't wanna talk about. Uh, the one I don't wanna talk about is Lady Dynamite, a show by Mitch Hurwitz starring Maria Banford. Uh, I'm only about halfway through it, and it's only ep- eight episodes, so I, I don't want to like really mess around with that. I'll talk about that later. It's been very funny so far, though. What I do want to talk about was I saw Cult of Chucky. Ooh. That movie was hot trash. It was <laughs> hot trash. It was so terrible. It was It was like, why did this get made? And more importantly, the way it ended was like it expected you to care about the film you just watched, to watch another sequel, but it did not earn any sort of sequel. Like, it, the, the movie ended so open-endedly that, like, it's like, all right, cool, obviously there's another one coming, but I don't care. I don't care at all. It was all, it was all garbage. There was terrible acting, terrible directing, terrible set design, terrible CG. So that's what, the, the, 
the fifth, maybe sixth Chucky movie that so far. To be fair, I've never seen I've never seen a Chucky movie. So I went in completely cold to this one and it was not a great introduction. Okay. At which, like, a moment where, like, with Brian and Chucky and Cena Chucky, they just accepted their terrible movies and just made silly shit. Oh, yeah. And this one looked a little bit more serious than those. <laughs> We're glad to have you, Blue. I'm glad to, glad to hear that you actually watched something this week. That's really exciting. Right? I know. It's nuts. <laughs> Ryland, I'm very interested in knowing what you are drinking today and also what you've been watching lately. Uh, yeah, so I'm continuing to uh, work on this bottle Woodford Reserve uh, Kentucky Whiskey. Shout out to all my st- statesmen out there. We're going to keep nice. it real tonight. Uh, and uh, what I watched recently was I binge watched uh, Manhunt the Unabomber, which is the Discovery Channel's first scripted dramatic series that came out over the summer. Uh, the entire series is available on Netflix. And it stars Sam Worthington, if you were wondering wherever he went to, uh, and also Paul Bettany as uh, Ted Kaczynski. And they do a really cool job with this. I think it's really neat that they actually um, they actually uh, take the position of showing the forensics behind what it took to capture the Unabomber. And Sam Worthington plays the um, forensics expert, which I did not know. This is the first uh, case where forensic linguistics played a big role and like linguistics is something that's very interesting to me so they basically caught Ted Kaczynski by the type of language he used to write his letters and I found that to be really interesting and Paul Bettany really plays uh, Ted Kaczynski and is an interesting character some people may think even sympathetic but if you look at like regardless of what he believed in he maimed and murdered dozens of people he just he deserves no compassion or sympathy at all um that uh it's interesting to see that with the manifesto he wrote and everything that there are people out there that uh see his, see those words and they're like well yeah this is actually how the world is actually becoming now and he's kind of told it how it is back a decade ago but um you you they kind of leave it up for you to accept it for what it is. And I thought it was actually really done well. That's very cool. That's good to know. And where can you find that? Uh, you can find it on Netflix right now. It's only about, uh, I think, eight episodes. They're all about 40 minutes long. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Um, and as I mentioned it before, I am Mocha Mike. And I am drinking tonight um, a wine by the company Dark Horse. Um, I got some good advice from some good people to try the Dark Horse Double Down Red. Unfortunately, the winery near me did not have that, so I um, panicked because I didn't want to look like I didn't know what I was talking about and just grabbed the closest Dark Horse they had, which was Dark Horse Rosé. And I learned that I don't really like (laughs) rosés. It tastes fine, but I don't know. It's not my thing. Though I have had a Frosé, and that was pretty darn tasty. Um, So maybe it's just the form, not so much the, uh, the type that matters to me. Um, as for what I've been watching, I had a really good time this week watching the new Netflix original animated series, Big Mouth. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of, heard of this, but it is an animated series about um, kids going through puberty and how awkward and embarrassing and terrible that is. And I had no real interest in watching this show um, until I found out about the creative team behind it. It was made by Nick Kroll and John Mulaney. Um, 
those two men are some of the funniest people out there right now. Um, Nick Kroll, I think, is super underrated. His show, The Kroll Show, is one of the better sketch comedy shows that I've seen in a while. And John Mulaney is, in my opinion, one of the funniest like comedy writers out there. If you haven't seen any of his work, you can check out his stand-up specials, Kid Gorgeous, as well as a bunch of others on Netflix. Um, but the two work really well together. They just came off of having an, a Broadway show called Oh Hello. Um, and this show was pretty much them living out the awkwardness of their teen years, um, specifically when they were around 13, and what it's like to be a kid going through puberty. And this show is crass. It does not hold any punches in terms of talking about what awkward puberty is like for kids. Um, one of the kids is haunted by a hormone monster, which is this invisible demon that only he can see that makes him do like horrible things, like jerk off in his sleeping bag while he's at a sleepover. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's a whole scene where um, one of his female classmates... Um, uses a mirror to look at her vagina for the first time and has a whole conversation with the vagina that has a cartoon face. It's super weird and super risque, but man, it really, really grew on me. The first episode wasn't great, but that show really grew on me by the end of it. Um, definitely check it out if you're a fan of either of those creative types or if you yourself were just awkward during your, your pre early puberty years. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of relatable material. That, that reminds me of uh, The Inbetweeners, which is, I think, my favorite comedy of all time. And like amazing it, that you've seen that show. I love the Inbetweeners. It it really. I hear it's amazing. Oh, it it, it, it is. It's it's like a perfect description of being slightly older than the te- television show you're talking about, like that 16, 17, 18 year range, where you like kind of know what's going on, but you're still so socially awkward, you don't really have any idea what's going on. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of a lot of embarrassment, um, and a good time. Yeah. So that's on Netflix. That's cool. Um, and for longtime listeners of the show, you may notice that there's a voice missing. Um, and I just want to take a moment, fellas, to raise our glasses and pour one out into your mouths, but pour one out for <laughs> our fallen comrade, Warren. Um, he can't be here with us today because the Bills lost last week and he still hasn't recovered. Um, so shout out to Warren. Hopefully we'll see you next episode. Um, but with that, let's jump right into our review. For everyone who knows this podcast, we like to take a mo- we like to do a sort of roundtable conversation about what we thought were the wins for a given movie, um, what some of our criticisms are, and our general overall thoughts. Um, as mentioned before, this is about Blade Runner 2049, um, starring Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, um, as well as a lot of other like big name actors and actresses, um, Jared Leto included. Um, but yeah, I want to let's start off with with Mike. We never get to hear you, your voice first. What were some of the things that you liked about this movie? All right, guys. I just have to say spoilers because we're going to spoil a lot. Um, yeah, that's a good point. If you haven't had a chance to watch this movie, um, please pause the podcast. Leave it on your screen. Don't press the home button. Go watch it and then come back. Um, and just yeah, so we can us. have a weird paused expression like a... Which, of course, is a podcast that no one can see, so that made no sense. Yeah, but. We're going to take a three-hour pause. Um, at the end of that three hours, we'll start talking again. Uh, pause so it on this face. This face right here. <laughs> All right. All right. I got a couple things, and I know a couple of the people have, like, some, some more, so I'll, I'll get to them faster because they're smarter than I am. Uh, I thought Gosling was great. Uh, he felt off the whole time in the best way possible. Like, he he... He nearly seemed uncomfortable acting, but as playing like this synth character, that was perfect. 
that he like his facial expressions never quite fit the scene. Um, I think that was on purpose and it was great. Uh, the twist was amazing. Uh, the fact that he wasn't the chosen one out of all these movies, it's like, Oh, especially where we're staring at down a new star Wars film, you know, in a couple months from now, we're like, Oh, this person's the chosen one. They're going to like save the whole universe. He spent pretty much what, two hours thinking that he was going to be the savior. And then all of a sudden at the very end, they say, they say like, no, it's actually this random girl that you spent one scene with. And that's, who's going to save everyone else. Um, yeah, what what I especially like about that is the fact that you don't just spend two hours thinking that he's the savior. He spends a good chunk of the movie like gradually coming to terms with the fact that he's the savior until yeah. the bug is then pulled out. Right, his right. Feet. Yeah, like he earned pretty much earns the spot of being like the one that is basically the son of Harris of Decker. But um, yeah, that it, that was one of the best like shocking moments ever. That they just did that abrupt pivot to the um, to the doctor in the lab um, and it wasn't but, I mean, even yeah, like Ryan Gosling's more than just some baby blue eyes I mean there's some uh, really cool acting choices he makes especially with like the uh, baseline test even though they're very like methodical and very uh, flat range vocally those are some really impressive acting skills I think even for those uh, moments as well yeah, I mean, well, back, back to the twist. I don't think it was like an M. Night Shyamalan ding dong uh, twist where, like, you know, the music cuts out. It's like, ta-da! Twist. Oh, my God, it's a twist. It's, it was just, like, built into the script very naturally. Um, and it's very unexpected. Um, yep. I thought, and I think Brown's going to touch on this more later, but, like, the scope was huge but also felt like a natural extension of the last movie. Like the, it blew my mind. The first shot of it is like zooming in on the city of Los Angeles and you see like the ground and all of a sudden it pivots a little and you realize the ground is 10 story tall apartment buildings and with like the little trenches. And that's what you thought was like a divot in the road was like really the road going through all of it. Like it's amazing that, they were able to create with effects and a little bit of practical design this world that felt absolutely massive and overcrowded without necessarily having to, like, overdo it. It was small things that made that. Um, I know a couple people are going to talk about this crazy, stupid CGI. Uh, like, the fact that we've come from... Was it a couple years ago where they did the uh, the Michael Douglas aging down for Ant Man, and in like a couple years we've seen this. You basically can take any face and superimpose it on any other actor or actress, and just mm-hmm. make that person come alive. Was insane. Like we they took they took the lady who was literally Harrison Ford's age now, Ray Finkel. She yeah. is <laughs> Ray Finkel. <laughs> Sean Gallagher. <laughs> no, that's that's same, literally same person. that's the same person. So Rachel, <laughs> Rachel literally played Ray Finkel and uh, what's yeah. Einhorn? Yeah, Detective Einhorn, um, which is so weird. So I, you know, I saw Blade Runner the original one the day before I saw Blade Runner two. 
Um, I, like I never, I'd never seen it before. And, uh, the entire time I was like, oh my God, this actress looks so familiar. She looks so familiar. And it was literally just, she was a decade younger than, than Einhorn. And that's where I knew Cause I've seen Ace Ventura 400 times. Yeah. And uh, once I looked down at IMDb, all I could look up was like, Finkel's Einhorn. Einhorn is Finkel. <laughs> that was the end of it. But, yeah, but, but seriously. Right. I mean. When Sean Young walked out as Rachel again, I mean, I, you couldn't really tell that. I mean, you know, there's effects that are costing it, but it was so uncanny. It was ridiculous. Unbelievable. And the, the whole scene where they had the hologram projected over the real person. So they had a real person in CGI that was projected over a real person is mind blowing. Like, that's not like green screening composite. Where, like, you can composite a background. You're literally compositing over another moving object. So that the the composite person had to learn every single movement of the other actress playing the scene. Like, that, it's, it's, that's honestly a technological wonder that they were able to do that. And that was incredible to see. Um, I thought that... And I think... Uh, so we don't have him. He's here in spirit. Warren had something on the music. Uh, but the sound effects were amazing. Like, they were so on point and so grounding in that world. Uh, they were very loud. Very unbelievably loud. Uh, it felt like the volume of the music and the sound effects was, like, far louder than 100%. Like, the the, the <laughs> voice was perfect. You know, like, it wasn't too quiet. It was, like, you could hear everything. But everything else around it seemed very loud. But to be fair, the sound design was that amazing that I felt it was on purpose. To me, the yeah, yeah. One thing that was cool about the soundtrack to this movie was when I first started to hear it, I thought it, they got the same composer from Blade Runner, which was a gentleman named Vangelis. I've never heard of him doing anything else, but that Blade Runner soundtrack he made back then is unique. It's one of a kind, and it kind of like. Uh, informed on a lot of other electronic music that came after it. And this, like, what was interesting, it kind of, the music kind of leads you into the same path, and then it just builds upon that to a more modern type of uh, synthesis that's mm. going on right now. It certainly also had a couple Hans Zimmer bombs yeah, in there. Yeah, and that's when I started to realize, yeah, Hans Zimmer was <laughs> when I started to hear those. It was. I absolutely agree with you too, uh, Blewett, over the fact that some things were just way too loud regarding the sound effects. I, I watched the movie at an IMAX theater, um, and with IMAX theaters, the sound is always going to be particularly loud. That's part of the experience of IMAX, but it was really jarring at a lot of points, to the point where it actually took me out of the movie mm. because I was just so overwhelmed at the sound of some of these sound, uh, sound effects. And a lot of the effects that were really blasted up were things like, you know, a flying car moving past the screen, so it makes like a big like, like noise, or an explosion, just these... Really uncomfortable, sudden burst of, of sound. Um, I wasn't that big of a fan of that part of it. Mm. Hmm. I, as, a, as somewhat of a sound junkie, I, I kind of liked how they did it. It was too loud, but it worked for me. Um, I think the, the big thing, and based on where we're going to go at the end of this, I think it works out, but... It all goes back to the question. So this this film, the original film, was based on a, mo- uh, a short novel called uh, "Was It uh, Do Androids Dream Have Electric, electric Dream?" Sheep. 
Yeah, Dream of Electric Sheep. And so, did this movie break the question of what is real and what isn't real? And what is free choice and what is not free choice? Um, I think in multiple forms of media, humanity has been asking this question. Whether it was Westworld from last year, whether the androids have the ability to choose or whether they're just programmed to do something. Uh, certainly in other medias, Bioshock Infinite from recent memory comes into play. The original... Yep. The original Blade Runner certainly asked this question of like, it never quite told you whether Decker was uh, an android or not, or was he, was he a human being? Even going back, like the basis of this question is free will. And humanity has been struggling to find that answer since literally the Bible or before. I mean, there's the, what is the, the was it uh, Socrates with the allegory of the den? where you don't necessarily know what is real or what's not. Like, there's so many versions of this where, you know, like, Christians might just decide that God chose the will and, like, that's why this event happened. And even something like science, like, science says, oh, this certain chemical reaction happened and a certain other thing happened and then we ended up with this situation where you could still view that as a lack of free will where your decisions are being formulated on a predetermined set of environmental cues. And it's this very interesting question of do we have choice or do we not have choice? And so a good movie will answer that question. A good movie will say, all right, well, here's this tough question to answer and we're going to give a decision. Uh, speaking a couple weeks ago on Kingsman, um, I thought that Kingsman 2 had the whole, like, what do we do with people that do drugs versus Kingsman 1 was, like, talking about the environment. I thought Kingsman 1 subtly answered a question in a very good way, whereas Kingsman 2 hit it over the head and it was just obnoxious the way they dealt with it. And so that's that fine line. A good movie did what Kingsman 1 did and set subtly told their opinion on something. A frickin' great movie leads it to the viewer to decide. And that's what you get with Blade Runner 20, uh, 2049, where they literally did not tell you the answer to does humanity have free will or does it not? It presented it in completely ambiguous way. And it's hard. So if you do it wrong, an ambiguous movie is absolutely dreadful to watch. You have no idea what's going on. You can't grasp any sort of concept. And then you're just lost the whole time. You're like, well, this is a Hollywood producer that's got his head so far stuck up his ass in some, like, <laughs> freshman-level psychology class. Shout out to uh, Mother. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Whereas, like, the whole time was like, you think you're smarter than you really are. And whereas Blade Runner 2049 did not answer that question of whether everything is predetermined or there is any sort of free will in humanity. And by an extension, you know, androids. Like, whatever. It's all, a, it's all a surrogate for humanity. And it really made you think. And I think the best movies... This is so silly, and I think I've talked about it before, that I come out of a good movie thinking I'm, like, the main character. So I'll come out of a Captain America film and be like, yeah, I'm going to go beat up some Nazis. Like, this is awesome. Uh, I'll come out of 
Spinal Tap being like, oh yeah, I'm a goofy rock star. Um, with Blade Runner, I came out of it thinking about that question. I was like, well, what is free will? And that really is the mark. You know, you can go to Mother and the leave and be like, what did I just watch? Why was that the last two hours of my life? I don't feel any connection to any characters. Whereas I really felt for Decker and uh, Joe. What was his K something? K dot nine. Yeah, K dot. Isn't that Kevin yeah. Federline's nickname? K dot. <laughs> <laughs> I think you would be the only one among us. Yeah, I'd be the only one. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so so it, I really I came out of it thinking under that that microcosm which to me is the mark of something that really engaged me as a person. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that's the biggest question. Did you guys feel that it made you question free will versus uh, defined paths? Maybe I'm completely um, off base, but... And I'd love to hear from... So shout out to our other social media. I'd love to hear y'all respond on Facebook, Twitter. Like, do you believe in free will and why? Versus, do you believe that everything is, like, pre uh, predetermined? And also, why? Like, please interact with us. I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Starting with you two, I guess. Let's, let's, because we're on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. That's, you know, that is one of the defining features of the original movie and why it, like, why the fan, part of why the fan community is still so rapidly fanatic about it to this day because 35 years later, before the release of 2049, people were still having conversations about that. Um, what it means to be human, what is that sign of that humanity, and how does that apply to the characters that we saw in the film? Um, so it's awesome that they, were, that they were able to maintain that. I think that that question and also that ambiguity is one of the defining traits of Blade Runner as a, series, as a franchise. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, if you go back to the original Blade Runner... Um, probably the most interesting character out of that is Roy Batty. And what Roy Batty's choice at the end, decide just to sit there and die, not take, not kill Decker. It gives you, I mean, it helps you think like, are, is something that is kind of made in a lab and not naturally grown, even though it has genetically human elements is it something that can make its own choices and come to its own terms, even if it has a limited lifespan or cannot reproduce or is designed to actually do a certain task? I mean, that those are things that are always uh, going to come into play when it comes to the choice of free will. What I think is really cool about this is um, with Kay, he's like part of a model series that um, – that uh, is kind of designed to obey the path that they follow. But we see throughout this that because of whether it's the realistic dreams that are that were put into them or that give them a yearning for companionship, for connecting with others, so that brings into his connection with joy, or that he finds this deeper meaning to follow where he thinks that he's the um, he's the prodigy uh, he's a natural born child of uh, Decker and Rachel that is he making these choices on his own or is he just following a programming that was there for him 
And ultimately, like, you find that people give him choices to follow, whether it's, like, bring Decker in and find his child to um, to stop a possible war from happening because a natural-born replicant will destroy all of civilization as we know it, or going ahead and uh, not doing that and protecting and helping the replicants rebel against their human creators so they have equal rights and equity and everything like that. He makes a choice where it's like, I want to bring a father to his daughter. And that's all they leave you with. And I think that speaks volumes that he may be dying at the end, but he made a choice that despite his job to be a Blade Runner to hunt down replicants and to see if they'd gone rogue, bring them to order, that he made a choice to say, okay, I'm going to take this guy, who may, I'm going to protect this guy and get him to his daughter, and he may or may not be a replicant. And that's one thing I really like about this movie is that it does not go ahead and definitively call and say Deckard's a replicant. It still leaves that as a question for fans because that's a fan-made question, if anything. It should continue to be a fan-made question. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love that they didn't answer that. Even though Ridley Scott gave a definitive answer, they still did not address that in 2049. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Brian. What about you? What were some of your uh, some more of your pros? Uh, so yeah, so I mean, I got a lot of big wins. I think with the wins, they have to start at the uh, director. So Denny Villeneuve, um, he's made three movies I've seen that I have found have been three of the most um, informing movies of the last decade. So if we look at Sicario: Arrival, now Blade Runner twenty forty nine, his visual style and able to capture. Uh, movies and just bring out emotion where you think that it's very bleak um, is impeccable. I think there should be a panning shot named after him, which is a Villeneuve <laughs> pan where you go over uh, you go over some mountains or a high spot and then you see this big vast emptiness. But that actual pan actually tells you a lot about what you're about to get into. Uh, I think it's really interesting that he uses that panning shot to reflect on the original Blade Runner, which opens with, you see, Los Angeles 2019 as a big smokestacks and fire and smog, and you see the cityscape. And through this, you have to go through miles and miles of um, either protein farms and uh, renewable energy before you actually get to the city. Uh, and so it's interesting to see like his update on the technology that way as well. Um, I find that they do a great job of um, modernizing the Blade Runner uh, universe. So Blade Runner is a story that has its own unique uh, cyberpunk um, aesthetic to it when it came out back in the 80s. And they definitely uh, pay homage to it, but they also modernize in very unique ways. So I think with Joy, with having the um, mobile device to allow her to roam around wherever, she, wherever that device is, I mean, that's a really neat little um, modernization of their technology. Whereas they also have things where the, um, the old uh, replicant test uh, becomes like a portable thing and they just have to scan an eye. They don't have to ask a million questions. And also when they happen to look through 
uh, different files. It still looks like kind of like microfilm, but it's in a very technological way. I think they do a really good job with uh, capturing that aesthetic and bringing it up to date as well. I think the story is a fantastic mystery. I mean, you think of Blade Runner as being a film noir. It's about a detective uh, who meets a damsel that uh, he needs to answer a question and like he gets in deeper than he thought he should have. And that's kind of like what uh, they continue in this story is that he, uh, he has a question that needs to be answered. He goes out just looking, doing his job, and then all of a sudden it's something else. And I always think that's really cool when you take just the everyday man and just put him into deeper circumstances than what he expected to be in. Um, I thought a lot of the side characters were amazing, even though they were there for a matter of seconds. Like um, Dave Bautista was awesome as Sapper Morton. Um, just even having him say, like, you never experienced a miracle and then getting killed, that's like... He just gets better with every role he gets. Yeah. Um, I also liked uh, just the touch of him having the small glasses that he puts on. My first thoughts were like, he needs to be Grey Hulk when I saw that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it just looked like him. But um, I thought it was a really cool um, character for him to play. I'll he's second, he's uh, really... With, uh, like, Ryan really oh, was that Blue? He's really come on his own as an actor. Like, that guy... From being, like, the dumb idiot from uh, Guardians. And, you know, he was still kind of like the idiot in, uh, was it Sky... Not Skyfall. Uh, it was the James Bond film that he was, like... Spectre. Spectre, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, he, you know, he was kind of like the big beefy guy in that. He, the, it's really nice to see someone that you hear about doing something to better themselves. Like, apparently this guy's taking, like, community acting classes... Then like, going and getting coaching and, like, working with everyone. And, like, it's shown. The dude's a good actor. Like, a legitimate good actor. I think that it's funny because, like, once he, like, slims down a little more from his WWE days, he might actually get legit acting roles. Like, not just, like, the big imposing bad guy, but, like, things that actually demand range and emotion. Because I think he has it in him. And that's the thing with, with a role like this is that, you know, whether it's Guardians of the Galaxy or um, that James Bond movie that you had referenced before, a lot of those roles just involve explosive moments, right? Like Drax is funny because he explodes with laughter or he is just like, he jumps into a fight. Um, whereas in a movie like this, it's all subtle, it's all soft. Like you said, it's the, the gently taking the tiny frames of glasses out of, his, out of his, you know, pocket and putting them on his face. It's, the way he looks at the ground, when, uh, you know, slightly when he says the phrase, like, have you ever seen a miracle? It's those little things like that that really show where his growth as an actor is coming from. I definitely want to see more of him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, second, uh, blew it on Ryan Gosling. I thought he was amazing and what he had to do. And I thought he had to take a lot of um, obedience to his role to keep it very uh, precise and what K is and how K becomes, I think is really hard for actors to do. And I think it shows just the dynamics of how good of an actor he is. Um, I really liked uh, Anna Darmus as Joy. I think a lot of people are going to actually see the Joy character and see that 
why is she even in this movie? I think a lot of people are going to question that. And I thought she was really cool because she actually brings an element to the story that you may not even think of that can talk a lot about um, what a replicant might go through. Is that a replicant has a role to play, that's their job, but they also will go back to a house and they'll also want to cook and also watch TV and stuff. And what does that play out for them like? And to have something like a virtual... um, a virtual uh, girlfriend that's, I mean, not uh, necessarily just for sexual needs, but also companionship needs. It It's interesting to see that she means a lot to Kay, even though she's just a product to others. And that um, it's interesting to see them putting value where it may be just something superficial to someone else. I thought that was really important to have that type of character in there. Absolutely. And an interesting thing about the Joy character, too, is that not only does she fill out exactly that role that you just described, but she also adds another layer of that questioning for the viewer, um, or uh, where by the end of it, you see that she expresses a love for, for Kay, and she goes to these lanes for Kay, and she puts herself in a threatening position for him, but at the end of the day, he walks by an advertisement and sees that it's just that. It was just programming, fulfilling a role and that reflects back on chaos. Like, what does that mean for him? Like, yeah. if he like, is that what he's supposed to be? As authentic as she came off, she was still just following her protocols. Is that all that his life is meant to be? Um, and it just adds it adds to like the multiple layers of what it means to be human, what it means to be able to make a choice, and whether or not that's important enough to risk your life for. Yeah, and I find that um, that moment with Jay and Mary, uh, Joy and Mariette when they sing together just so he can have a physical presence for joy um, during their uh, during the time of intimacy. It's like one of the most beautiful things I've seen of a film this year, that uh, even though you're in this like stark, bleak, uh, cyberpunk world, that there is that kind of like, hey, you know what, this is kind of nice and sweet, that she's going out of her way to find a physical way to interact with him. Um, I also thought love was amazing. Uh, Sylvia mm-hmm. Hooks, she brought, um, she was a badass. Like even like that scene where she's just wearing the glasses, remotely controlling the drones to shoot the missiles in the dead zones, and um, just getting her nails done at the same time. <laughs> I thought that spoke volumes about what her character was like, and just telling them like, "Oh, do your fucking job. Go, you're a Blade Runner. Go and find this." replicant child so it can be done with this um and the unique touch of like her crying when she had to actually kill someone was interesting because you know she's like programmed to do like military ops and all sorts of crazy shit she's like wallace's creme de la creme replicant and but every time she goes and actually has to do something evil she has to cry at that moment. That's an interesting touch that he chose to put into her. Yeah. Well, a good question is, did he actually put that touch into her or was that, you know, a sign of her having similar, um, you know, like neural developments as her other Nexus 10 models, like, Hey, where she was maybe coming to terms with the fact that she didn't want to do it while still following through with those protocols. Mm. Yeah. 
There goes ambiguity. I thought, yeah, absolutely. I thought from like a character design, one of the brilliant things is not to give her any sort of eyeshadow. This is a small thing, but her eyes had no makeup on them whatsoever. And that was so unnerving and like weirdly robotic. Like it was, it's weird to look at her face. It, like she didn't, she didn't, like we have this archetype of what a human woman should look like and she just didn't for that film. And I love that. Uh, from a, a, you know, I don't know, makeup designer, director chose that, but like she, she looked off because her eyes weren't feathered with makeup the entire film. And it completely drove home the point that she was like this vaguely roguish, autonomous android. And I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, some other side characters I thought were really cool were like Liddy James as the orphanage uh, caretaker. Uh, Mark Dad Opti as Dr. Badger is just like forging documents and things like that. I thought like seeing him pop out of nowhere was awesome. And he did a really good job with that just moment, that just moment character. And it was like, you know what? He's a great actor. I mean, it's good that you got him for that. And Mackenzie Davis, I thought she was awesome as Marietta, even though it's like kind of like a bit piece. Um, there were some interesting things they did with her character that she wasn't just, uh, prostitute replicant she was there kind of working for the resistance what i thought were some interesting uh choices as well um and then also like there's some really cool aesthetics in this like the interior of wallace's uh, uh of office uh like how it's all made out of wood and like you have people say like they've never seen trees before that he's able to afford all this wood to make his offices inside. I mean, it's telling of like how rich this guy is or that there's water everywhere. And you know, that water is probably a scarcity because of how brief Kay takes showers. It's like two second showers um, that he has pools of water and that he has drones that are jumping and playing in them. Uh, it, it's interesting to actually have that dichotomy of like, what do everyday people get versus someone that's at the mountaintop as well? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I fully agree with all of the, all, all of those points. Um, yeah. and lastly, I'm glad they brought back Edward James almost. That was I thought that was just a really good, just give him a couple seconds to remind us like who his character was and why he was important. Yeah. Edward James almost should be in every sci-fi show movie. Fanfic, everything. Battlestar Runner 2049 <laughs> Galactica. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks, Brian. Um, I have to actually somewhat disagree with you on probably the most significant uh, win that I have for this film. Maybe not disagree, because Denis Villeneuve was... His directing work is fantastic. Um, and you're right. All of, you know, a lot of his... You got a good sense for who he was as a director coming out of this film. Like it carries through without being super um, derivative of his other works. Um, but I think the true god of this film, the one to whom we should be bowing down and worshiping, is the director of photography, Roger Deakins. Um, that man, as far as I can as as much as I can say, he is absolutely a mastermind of his craft. The there were so many shots that were just just jaw droppingly beautiful in this film. Um, the way they use lighting for different scenes, you know, the scene where when they go to the ruins of Las Vegas and Ryan Gosling is walking through 
you know, walking along the desert and it's completely empty and there are just these this gradient of reds and yellows and gives this effect almost as if he's walking on Mars. And, like, he had this really alien and really unique look for every single location they went to and every single shot. Um, and it was absolutely beautiful. You know, he's done a lot of other, you know, big works too as director of photography. He did Sicario. He yeah. did Skyfall. He did No Country for Old Men. Um, Shawshank Redemption, like... Uh, he's done a lot. A he's been a mind. god for a while. Yeah. That's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. It's like, I think Denny Villeneuve has finally reached that precipice. I agree. Denny Villeneuve absolutely agree, uh, deserves um, accolades for this. But I just... There were so many individual shots in this movie where just like the way that it was... The way the lighting and the way the cinematography was done was just breathtaking in a way that I feel like I don't really experience a lot due to being jaded by the CG era. Um, so I got to give a big shout out to him for his work on this film. Yeah. Um, I'm not a big fan of Ryan Gosling as an actor. I'm a huge fan of him as a face, um, <laughs> but not so much as an actor. Uh, La La Land sucked. I'm just going to throw that in there. But I do agree with you, Brylin. <laughs> this, uh, this was a really good role for him. Um, you know, the majority of Kay's job was to be smug and pretty, which he gets really easily. But there was a lot of subtlety to how he delivered on that role. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm not going to re-delve into it because you touch a lot of points on it. But I really do think that he was a good choice for this film. Um, and I'm glad to have him sort of shoulder the mantle of Blade Runner in this new series or in this new film. Um, there was a really great amount of attention to detail. Um, and in particular, they did a really stellar job of staying true to the heart of the original film. Um, Blue, you talked about this a little bit regarding the, the sense of ambiguity, the sense of like not knowing um, that was pervasive throughout the film. Um, but there were like there were so many little touches here that just made callbacks to other films. The big, my favorite one for me was the final scene. You know, the final battle scene or fight scene between Kay and Love um, at the uh, at the the seawall drove through so many of the elements that you saw with the final fight scene in the original Blade Runner. The original Blade Runner ends, you know, it's that it ends on, you know, on a rooftop where it's dark. Um, they're fighting each other in the rain, chasing one another. And Harrison Ford is about to die from falling from a high place to the ground. Um, and he's pulled up by Roy Batty and he delivers that line, that epic line about tears in the rain. Um, and in this film, we got tears in the waves. You know that Love was having that tear go through her eye because she was planning on yeah. killing Ryan Gosling. And instead of um, the main character being saved by being pulled up, um, you know, the main character claimed victory by pushing someone down to their death. And it was just this really like playful kind of retelling of that, that previous final scene, um, which I really enjoyed. I, I liked it a lot. Hmm. Um, the, uh, there was a pretty... For a movie like this, there was a pretty heavy use of practical effects. There was plenty of CGI, but there was there were a lot of practical effects, and I think that that really made the film, at least for me. Um, I didn't necessarily expect there to be a lot of practical effects. I also went into this in Warren style without watching any of the trailers. Um, but using so many practical effects allowed for the CGI that did exist to still come off as sort of alien and futuristic, um, and which is which is wild to me because. They're delivering a sense of futuristic, like unfamiliar alien-like technology um, to an aesthetic that was established in 1982, 
an aesthetic that was supposed to represent the year 2019 when it came out in 1982. Um, clearly, we're not at that point yet. Here's hope in the next few years brings us up a little bit closer to replicants. But the fact that they were able to bring that forward, um, you know, three and a half decades later, and still give a sense that this was a futuristic world um, was really surprising to me. And I think they could have easily messed that up. So yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think like some of the coolest things they do with their effects. I mean, it had to do with some really ancient things like Elvis and um, Frank Sinatra. Like that whole moment where Deckard and um, Kay are fighting in the uh, the Vegas lounge, and there's the virtual Elvis on stage. It's, I mean, it adds a little bit of humor, but it's also really cool about putting you in just the spot at that time, which is really nice. Yeah, definitely. I also thought I also have to agree with you, Brylan. Sylvia Hoax, uh, I don't know if I pronounced that right, as Love was phenomenal. She was, in my opinion, hands down the single most intimidating and chilling robotic assassin that we've seen since the T-1000. Um, and she deserves all of the credit going into this film. She was fantastic. Similar to Ryan Gosling, her character had these brief moments of emotion where it suddenly burst out of the character as if it had been being hold, held back the entire time. Just a few moments where they slip and they let out their rage and it, it was like it was chilling when when it happened with her. Um, also, the scene where she intimidates the police chief by grabbing her hand and squeezing it to break the glass, uh, the scotch glass inside her hand, was just like horrific. Um, yeah. And she just did a great job in that role. Also, you went through a, a pretty long list of some of the great actors in this film because there are so many. But I have to make sure that we get a shout out to Lenny James. Um, yeah. He played the uh, the child smuggler or the child peddler, the one who was taking the orphans and working them into a sweatshop. He had a really brief role in the film, but for a like terrified, paranoid, um, isolated um, criminal out in the boondocks, he really did a good job of selling both his obnoxious sense of power when he was domineering over little children's old little children as well as his, like, sniveling fear the moment he realized that Kay was a cop. Um, Yeah. The switch between that without, like, overdoing it is something that Lenny James is fantastic at. Um, I'm a big fan of The Walking Dead, um, and he is a great character in that show. So being able to see him in other forms of media that are just, you know, UK, like, television shows made in the UK or films made in the UK um, is great for me. So shout out to him. Uh one of the things about this movie too that I thought was really great was, and I mentioned this a bit, a bit earlier, but the fact that they held true to a lot of the themes um, and the ideas that were hallmarked to the original movie. In particular, there is a sense of isolation and a paranoia that was constant throughout the entire film. And that's a great callback to the original movie. The original yeah. movie is about that. You know, the paranoia of not only what does it mean to be human, but could I be human? Or even if the character isn't questioning it, is he human? You know, by putting that paranoia in the mind of the, the audience, we got all of that through this film as well, through Kay's character. Um, and like I mentioned this earlier, it's not easy to retread a subject like that within the same framework and not do the exact same thing with different characters. Um, so I'm glad they were able to kind of change where the source of that paranoia came from. Um, as well as the isolation, you know, not only do we see it, it the isolation in... Kay's character and being someone who doesn't interact with people 
um, even considering Joy as a non-person. Like, he doesn't know how to interact with people, and so he's always by himself. But also, almost every shot in the film gave this really overwhelming sense of vast, all-consuming space or structures around an individual object of focus. Um, whether that was, you know, Kay walking around in empty rooms or along, like, wide open spaces or the flying cars flying around, which are almost always shot individually. Um, unfortunately, that is not very uh, um, or very accurate description of L.A. traffic. I don't know why there weren't <laughs> like, tons of cars completely gridlocked yeah. in the sky. Um, but it did add to that sense of just isolation, and you felt that throughout the film. Um, and I feel like it really weighed on me as a viewer. Yeah, I think one of the big elements of isolation in this movie is, especially like paranoia, is like you go back to the big question of free will and everything. Like you have a side that wants the replicants to have their uh, independence and be seen as equals. You have the side that wants to keep them under control, but wants to take them to the next level. And then you have this Dr. Staline in a isolated glass cube that, she has um, immunity issues, and she's not able to come out into the real world. And it becomes very bittersweet that Deckard's child turns out to be Dr. Staline, that she could never go out and actually experience the world because of that malady that she has, that she has to go through and actually selectively create these memories uh, to either have others experience for her or others actually follow a trail for her to have a connection. Yeah, and it makes for this really bittersweet sense at the end where, you know, Decker is finally reconnected with his child, whom he had willingly and knowingly decided to keep himself isolated from for everyone's safety. And when they are finally able to meet in this peaceful moment where it's gently snowing outside and there are no villains around because no one expects them to be alive... And they're still separated by that pane of glass, an invisible pane. It's just inch, like not even a full inch, probably, that they just can't barely make it to each other. And it's it's super bittersweet because that isolation remains, even though they finally come back together. Um, and also, they, really, ended, really they ended on ambiguity, where like you don't know if she legitimately has a some sort of immune disease. Because do androids get immune diseases? It's kind of like Bubble Boy, where, like, they told Bubble Boy that he had that weird disease, and then at the end you figure out that his mom was just lying to him. Spoiler alert for a 20-year-old movie. (laughs) Well, that adds to the ambiguity, right? So now we don't know if, all right, does she have an immune disease because she is something different than just human or just android, and therefore her body has a hard time coping with the environment? Or, as we know, the the rebellious... um, uh, Nexus units have set her up from childhood to be a specific person within society. They said they arranged all that. So did they arrange it for her to be treated as though she at least live in a bubble to keep her safe and to keep mm-hmm. her isolated from humanity so that people can't come in? Even to the very last mo- minute, this movie just drives ambiguity and self self doubt into the the narrative in a really really cool way. Also, what is she made of? I would like to say this. I'm kind of bummed because I felt... <laughs> when a daddy and a mommy love each other. <laughs> well, but what if the mommy and possibly the daddy are made out of, like, nuts and bolts? We Well, we know for a uh, fact that replicants aren't made from nuts and bolts. Just they're because... made out of 
they're bio they're bioengineered, right? But there are bi- they're biologi- biologically identical. It's genetic genes. synthetic genetic material, right? I I it's funny because I loved for a split second feeling smart in this movie where they were like <laughs> scrolling through the you know the like the, all those letters and then I was like T A what is it T A C G Gattaca. Mm-hmm. I what think yeah, and it was like. Alright, dude, that's that's genetic code. Like, they're looking at genes right now. And then, like, a minute later, they're like, oh, yeah, looking at the DNA. I can't believe all humans are made of this. I felt smart for a minute to let me have that. <laughs> I wish I wish they didn't say that because then I would have felt better about my own intelligence. Uh, but, so we don't know. I mean, I guess we don't know whether, where the difference is. Like, do they have DNA that differentiates themselves from human beings, or is it, like, one similar base code that, like, some sort of programming takes over? Um, which, you know, again, opens up that ambiguity of, like, what is she going forward? And again, you know, touching base on what you mentioned earlier, Bryland, they maintained that same ambiguity with Deckard's character. Um, you know, he's, it's not as easy to say, oh, well, he's an old man and he aged, therefore he's not a robot. Because the whole point of the conversation, the uh, debate over whether or not he is a, a Nexus unit, comes from the fact that the Nexus, uh, the prototype Nexus Eights that Rachel that Rachel was, um, was designed with a long lifespan and was designed yeah. to not be able to tell that it wasn't already a, a replicant. Um, and so they never once give you any sort of confirmation. It doesn't matter that he looks older because it still lines up with what's already been established in the lore. Um, there was yeah. This movie just did a uh, did a really good job of paying attention to what came before it, honoring what came before it, while creating a new and completely viable entry in that series, without just like without just being super derivative. Yeah, and ultimately, I mean, like Blade Runner is not a movie that I mean that's why I needed a sequel. No, it's it's something that's unexpected, and it's awesome to see that. Not only did you get something that uh, continues the story that was set place 35 years ago, but adds to it in a very deep way as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, I just want to give a quick, a little bit of credence to Warren, who sent us his thoughts, as you guys mentioned earlier. Um, most of the, his, his pros for this film were similar to us. He loved, um, you know, Ryan Gosling's journey as K to under, coming to understand whether, you know, where his humanity lied. Um, he loved love just like we did and really thought the fact that she cried whenever she had to kill someone was really cool. Um, as well as Batista, interestingly enough, he felt that there were a lot of similarities to the film her in this movie. Guys, have you seen that movie? Yes. Blew it. I have not. No. Okay. Well, Brian, the question is for you. I mean, obviously there's the, there's the obvious representation of love with an AI. Um, but do you agree with Warren? Do you think that there was some hints of the film her in this? Uh, the Kay and Joy relationship are um, kind of very reminiscent of how her is set up. I think her is more interesting because it is kind of like a, I mean, just a regular everyday human being that gets an iPhone with a very high-end version of Siri that continues to grow with them. So it's definitely dives deeper into just that element to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, 
I would say beyond that, uh, I think uh, Joy and Kay's relationship plays a different role than what you find in her. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Shout out to Warren here with us in spirit. Um, despite the fact that each of us had a lot about this movie that we liked, no film is without sin. And so I think that we should take the next moment to bring to light that sin and chastise it um, as much as we can. <laughs> so let's talk a bit about the about our criticisms for this. Brylan, why don't you give me a start on this? See your, your thoughts. Uh, I have some very brief criticisms. I think my biggest criticism is that uh, I wanted to see more differentiation with uh, Wallace Corp and Tyrell. Um, I found that they both like live in big giant pyramids. It's kind of weird. Um, but, um, I found that, uh, Jared Leto's, uh, Neander Wallace, um, he always, he automatically is a bad person. He's, he's definitely gone to this edge where he's given so much to the world. He's fed the, he's fed the planet. He's been able to provide services for, the outer realms and everything. And he's already immediately shows with the birth of that new replicant that he's not satisfied with what he's created. He wants to do this thing where replicants are self replicating. So he doesn't have to use so many resources and everything, which I find that Jared Leto just plays it up too much. That it's kind of like his Joker. It's very in your face, very ham fisted uh, way of, saying, hey, here's the evil corporate overlord. Whereas if you look at Terrell in the first one, you see a businessman. You see someone that's like a dreamer and an inventor and everything, that he cares for Rachel, he loves what he's created, and that he has no remorse for what he's done, even though there might be some side effects that are negative in society because of what he's created as well, which I think is a more... um, complex way of approaching it a more realistic way of approaching like the big megacorp as well um i would say the other thing is i felt there was sometimes just some editorial cuts that were kind of abrupt there's one where love came into Kay's apartment she's standing one second then all of a sudden she's sitting and has her legs crossed which was kind of weird it was very jarring and i'd say the like the biggest one is when um Kay is walking through uh, Las Vegas and goes up to the bee farm and he sticks his hand into the bees and he sees his hand covered in bees. Then automatically the next scene is like he's just walking. And it's just like, okay, what was the purpose of that? And it's very, just like a very symbolic scene, but kind of like needed more natural approach to it as well. And lastly, I mean, not really a criticism, but it seems like in... Harrison Ford uh, coming back to these old franchises, it thinks like there's a common uh, theme of his uh, semen just causing some badness to happen all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, Blue, why don't you tell us about the sins of this film and what you did not like about it? Yeah, let's keep on swimming through it. Uh, So I think think the the biggest issue for me was that it was a heck of a buy-in. This movie was almost three hours long, and it was very weighty subject matter. Like, you... I'm not saying I'm that intelligent, because I'm not, but, like, you have to have somewhat of an intelligence factor to, like, figure out some of the deeper themes that they were hitting on, and you have to be aware of them as they were going through the motions. Uh, Also, like, American 
this day and age can't sit still for like seven minutes to do a podcast without messing around with their phone like I've currently been doing. Uh, thank you for the quiet errors in this podcast for me because I was just messing around my phone. Um, never mind sit through a nearly three-hour film uh, and f- trying to figure out what's going on there, especially because it didn't have a ton of action. Like It did a great job of sticking to that neo-noir genre that was established in the first one, which is not heavily reliant on like blowing up like Michael Bay type things. Like, hey, look at me, look at me. Um, with that, like, it's... I hope this movie does well commercially, and I think it will just due to its status of like a sequel with a good marketing budget and a bankable actor in Ryan Gosling. But I think that it could do well because when everyone goes home and is like, yeah, that movie was three hours long. There's going to be plenty of people that are like, I am not going to go see that because I don't want to sit there for that long. Um, never mind the people that I'm sure will go in and realize I don't understand a single thing this movie is talking about and then leave immediately because of that because they're not smart enough because they live in Alabama. Sorry for yeah, everyone. It's, it's interesting you brought up that point because this film did have a particularly rough opening weekend. Um, the opening weekend numbers, I believe, were right around $32.5 million, which isn't terrible for most movies, but for a big-budget film like like this one, um, is kind of rough. I mean, this movie costs $150 million to make, and I'm sure it will it'll recoup some of that over time, but you know, that was the problem with the first film. The first film was not a blockbuster in theaters. It was a cult classic that built up an audience over time. Um, so yeah, we'll see whether or not the hundred fifty fifty million was well, was well invested for the the people who put their money in on this film. And, and it might be like it might be one of those things that we've definitely talked about this on previous podcasts that I don't think it's worth it to remake cult classics because the reason they became a cult classic was because people kind of gradually bought into it, which for commercial success means literally nothing. Like, the, the whole point is, like, I think you should almost remake those terrible movies that never reached cult classics, but might have an interesting idea that you can do something with. Um, where normally something like Blade Runner, I would never say, redo this movie. Or uh, yeah. right, make a sequel to. But, um, a couple other things, uh, you know, in talking about, like, having a big budget, obviously part of it goes into marketing, and I thought it was, the marketing was terrible for this. Every single trailer for it and every single ad showed Harrison Ford. I went into this movie thinking that he was going to be a big part of it and he was going to, like, aid Ryan Gosling, where in all honesty, he was an objective. He was something that, like, you spent most of the movie trying to reach towards and trying to learn more about rather than, like, him being an active participant in the plot. And... For, for me, that was a little bit of cognitive dissonance where, like, I expected him to show up much earlier, and then when they kind of, like, alluded to him and then kind of realized that this was going to be more of a fetch mission rather than, like, a, a uh, you know, a partnership mission, it, it definitely turned me off and, like, hey, I'm not getting the movie that I thought I would be getting. And so, I, I you know, I say this more and more because I never like to admit Warren's right because, like, I don't, I just can't buy into that, but... <laughs> Um, Warren's definitely right in this where like this was definitely a movie that I would not want to have seen any of the trailers and would have just liked to have seen the original and gone in blind on um, 
Yeah, I can see that. Like, I mean, Harrison Ford ended up being Ryan Gosling's master sword. Right. <laughs> he was in there for a little bit. Uh, two, two, like, two things that I think were important. Uh, the loose ends, my God, for a movie that was almost three hours long, the fact that you had any loose ends at all were, like, that weren't, like, philosophical was kind of mind-blowing. Like, they, they seem like they hand-fisted in that whole rebellion plot in the last third of the movie and then never actually went anywhere with it. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, if you reach her, there's going to be an open robot rebellion. And I looked down at my watch, and I'm like, I've been sitting here for two and a half hours. How is there going to be a robot rebellion at all? And so, like, you know, clearly, I guess they're going to try and make this another summer blockbuster. Then in 2020, we'll see, or 2019, we'll see a Blade Runner 2051. And, you know, everything will be hunky-dory, and we'll see the end of that plot line. But, like... I wasn't invested enough in this movie to determine that, like, you had to open up this whole can of worms in the, the third act that I'm expected to wait another two years to figure out what actually happens for. And that was very frustrating. The last thing, and this was huge for me, Gosling should have died in this film. The whole scene, based on the plot, based on rational, like, human behavior or android behavior... Um, and that's not like a, they needed to do this to push the plot for, but they literally, they had a moment where he was, he, he got scissor kicked by love. He was unconscious and they made no qualms in any of this movie about killing anyone. And apparently they're like, oh yeah, that one bullet, bullet to take down this guy would have been too expensive. So he has to wake up five hours later with like these savior robots. They should have killed him and they, sh- or, or. And I don't mean that, like, from a a plot perspective, because I think that he was important to the plot, and I don't think they should have killed him. But there was no motivational error, uh, motivational, like, things that should have left him alive in that skyscraper scene. Like, he should have been, they should have found another way to write him out that they captured Harrison Ford's Decker character in leaving Ryan Gosling's K alone. Because it made no sense why they left him there and didn't just kill him. So wait, so your complaint is that he didn't die in that moment, but you are aware that he died at the end of the film, right? Right, yes, yes. Okay, so, okay. And so I don't okay. think narratively that he should have died at that moment. I think motivationally wise, he should have died at that moment. Because, again, there's like no reason why they shouldn't have just put a bullet through his head. Be like, oh, this guy's a pain in the ass. Let me just kill him. Like everyone else. Like it's it would have been more of a cover-up to kill a police captain than to kill a rogue cop. Like, they could have written that in the newspaper, like, yeah, we killed this guy, let's bring him back in, like, look like heroes. But they didn't for some insane reason. Like, I have no idea why that didn't happen. And it was, like, some arbitrary, like, just, just, it, it didn't make sense. So. That's fair. And I know he dies in the rest of it. I love the way that it played out. I love the whole, like, you know, the battle that they hyped up the entire movie towards, like, that fight was amazing. The him dying on the snow was, like, beautifully shot, beautifully edited, beautifully acted. Like, it just didn't make sense why he lived through that other scene. Mm, fair. Yeah, and it took me out of it for that. But, yeah, those are big things for me. Cool. Yeah, I mean... I need to echo a few sentiments here, both 
of you guys said it, and I need to make sure that it's known, the film was too long. That's, that's a lot coming from me as well. Um, like, you're talking to someone who, like, who has watched the, who has marathoned the Lord of the Rings Extended Edition trilogy. Like, I like movies being longer, especially if it's a movie I enjoy, because why would I want it to end? However, I feel very strongly that a movie should be extended by its content, um, not by just the length of its scenes. And I feel like, as you mentioned earlier, Blewett, um, that was the issue with this film. It wasn't so much that it had enough content to fill two hours and 49 minutes, it was, or whatever, however long it was, two hours, 55 minutes maybe. It was that the scenes were too long. If they had shaved off some, if they had shaved off just a cut, little bit from each scene, you could have easily gotten this film to feel be more comfortable from a viewer experience. Um, and I also have to say too that coming taking over a franchise that's a cult classic, you have to be aware that the fact that it's a cult classic means that it had certain faults that prevented it from being a major commercial success. Yeah. And if you're going to create recreate that film or further the story of that film. Yes, you want to do everything you can to keep the feel of that original movie, but you need to consciously address the issues that kept it from being mainstream successful in the first place. Um, and, and like you said, this film, the original Blade Runner was slow. The original Blade Runner was not action-oriented. It was like a no. sci-fi noir. It was it was meaty and it was dense, and you had to think and chew over the, top, the stuff in, inside it. But there's still ways that you can present that same sort of movie and accelerate it or address the things that, that, that made it like a failure in theaters box, in box office when it first came out in 1982. Yeah, it brings up a good point that do you always have to tell a Norse story for the Blade Runner universe? Mm-hmm. Probably not. I mean, we've seen some, there's some interesting uh, YouTube shorts that Dilly Villeneuve got his, some of his friends to actually make and those are actually really unique especially the anime one is actually very action-packed and really interesting about the uh um replicate revolt and it's interesting to see like where do you want to see like this universe's story be taking place next do you want a future story do you want some in the past to talk about the blackout do you want to be in a not do you want to be in a novel that's a little bit more night digestible for a noir type of story? Do you want it to be YouTube shorts? Do you want it to be a TV series? Uh, I think the the sky's the limit for something like the Blade Runner universe is that you can take it a million different ways. It doesn't have to be a movie starring Harrison Ford. Right. Uh, that's a good point, too, to bring up. If you are a fan of Blade Runner, um, you should go, and you haven't yet, you should go online to YouTube and watch the Blackout 2022 animated short film. It's by uh, Watanabe Shinichiro. Um, he is the uh, creative uh, head. Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, Cowboy Bebop behind um, Samurai, Samurai Champloo. He did some uh, one of the episodes of the Animatrix. The guy is, like, is a god in the world of Japanese animation. And he did a great job with his short in that he did kind of give that sort of like that heavy, you know, mental uh, approach to the story while still making it, you know, a bit faster, action oriented, a lot of really dramatic scenes without it feeling like it was just some sort of shoot em up, um, crazy, explosive Michael Bay uh, short film. Um, so definitely check that out. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think that there was a missed opportunity. The movie did such a good job of recreating the feelings that were involved with the first movie, 
but completely missed out on how they could take the franchise further and improve it in that way. Um, similar to this, or not similar to it, but it kind of leads into my next point. Um, Jared Leto's villain um, just simply wasn't enough, meaningful enough for me. A lot of the things that went on around Wallace were really cool. Like Brian mentioned, the aesthetic involved with his with his with his secret lair it wasn't really a secret lair; it was just his office. Office, <laughs> but it gave off. It looks like a it looks like a Bond villain yeah. secret like lair. Like Austin Powers secret lair. Like we off. got we got headquarters for companies shaped like UFOs now. So that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Um, and yeah, so like the aesthetics around him were cool. Some of the concepts were cool. Uh, but at the end of the day, he was just an outwardly wicked version of Tyrell. Like you said, he wasn't different enough in ways that really added to the film, outside of him just being the driving force behind Love, who was the film's active antagonist. Um, I do feel like he's been set up really well to be a compelling villain across a multi-movie franchise, but then that begs the question, do we even want Blade Runner series, the Blade Runner series to have that kind of scope? Like, do we want a four-movie Blade Runner like well, franchise? That's, that's is that really what this movie was? Like, is that where the movie's heart is? I don't. Think that's so. where it went through yeah. with like the uh, the whole like opening up the whole robot rebellion thing. Like, I I don't care. I want this to be like a, a philosophical movie that ends, and maybe in twenty years, thirty years, you can make another one of these. I really don't want it to become like a Star Wars film. I freaking love Star Wars, and. I fear that I'm going to get burnt down on them. But every single time I see a trailer, I'm like, oh my god, lightsabers. Whereas with, like, Blade Runner, like, I don't I don't know if a year from now when they release the trailer for the next one, if I'm going to be that jazzed up about it. Because it's not that engaging from, like, a, I need to see this every two years. Yeah. The original Blade Runner felt right, and I feel like hit so many chords with fans... Because it was a small, personal story told within this overwhelmingly large uh, setting. You know, like the world of, of L.A. 2019 is, is oppressive. And you, while you're watching Harrison Ford walk through the smog-filled streets of L.A., you feel that kind of choking claustrophobia. But the, world, but the story itself is just about him. Um, there are some ancillary characters involved, but it's it's his story, and that that's what yeah. made it good. It told its story from start to finish. I don't I don't want Blade Runner to be a franchise. I want Blade Runner to tell me a good story and just end it there. No. Um, so so again, just to like loop back to my previous point, Wallace is going to be a great movie for a trilogy, a great villain for a trilogy. Absolutely, um, I don't want it to be a trilogy, and as a result, if it is just this one movie, I don't think he was an impactful enough main villain for this film. Yeah, one one other thing about Wallace is that for some reason, even though he has love, that he can't intimidate Deckard enough in his office that he has to take him off world. It seemed like kind of like a ham-fisted like plot point to just get him into a place where they had that final fight. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean it's. He, he never comes off as smarter than his predecessor, which I think is something you needed for Wallace to be versus Tyrell. And even though Tyrell was able to unlock reproduction, which is something that is like the, the holy grail of um, synthetic design of human beings, 
is that, yeah, it's like I've made them better and more improved and everything, but this one little piece, I don't know how to figure it out. But my predecessor was able to figure it out. He never came off as feeling that way as well. He just felt like remorse about, like, I never knew how to do this. And just he would cut that new replicant's belly open because of that. And that's exactly where Wallace has the opportunity to shine. Because at the core of his character, when you take everything into account that we saw of him in this film, as well as him in the other Blade Runner short, Nexus Dawn, where it shows him convincing the leaders of the world at the time to lift a, the replicant prohibition and allow him to start producing replicants again. Of everything we know in, of, of this film, he is he thinks he's a god. He has this god complex where he literally feels like he has gifted humanity its second chance at, at life. He has given to the world. He has expanded into the universe. But... He, there's one thing that just nags at him, and it's the fact that Tyrell was better because Tyrell was able to create, even if it was accidentally, a replicant that was able to breed. Um, and that pisses him off because it's the one thing that shows that he wasn't better than Tyrell. The new Nexus units are pretty much the same as the Nexus 8 models, except that they just obey. Other than that, he's an opportunist. Like He was able to... to give back through technology humanity's ability to survive in the mass numbers that it has. But his God complex is challenged by the fact that Ty- that he that he can't reach that same level that Tyrell did. And that's compelling, but it's not pulled out. We yeah. don't we don't really get that. You have to think about that character in order to get to that point. And that character, as we were showing him in the film, does not warrant that level of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um Finally, and this is just like a, um, just a little bit of like a final touch of a, of a criticism, um, and this is more of just a personal thing. I understand the significance of Joy, and I appreciate what she meant to the story and what she meant to Kay's development. But honestly, I was pretty disinterested in her throughout most of the film. Um, her scenes were pretty much a drag for me most of the time. They were really cool looking scenes, um, especially like let me get don't get me wrong too, Anna De Armas excellent actor did a phenomenal job of delivering her role and the sex sync scene was visually arresting and like you said earlier Brian or blew it a local watershed moment in terms of the technology involved but her actual character just didn't it, her scenes didn't mean anything to me um, I felt kind of bored during those and obviously there was significance she wasn't just thrown in for the sake of being thrown in but I don't know. Well, as, as soon as as soon as she said in a movie that had actual twists in a good way, as soon as she said, "I have no backup," you like if I'm there and I'm I get destroyed, I'm gone. I'm like, well, she's done. And yeah, there was exactly. no the when like they broke that that should have been this big moment that in the film that like you were heartbroken that Joy was gone, where they set that up a half hour ago, where you're like, she's done. She's gone. I should accept this now and then move on with my life. Exactly. The audience has way too much time to prepare for the fact that she's going to die because they telegraph it so brazenly. Um, and it just it just, it just just made the character less impactful for me as a viewer. They do, but I mean, Anna Darmus is uh, acting. I mean, the big thing about it is that Joy is there for Kay. And if it's not for her interactions with Kay, yeah, you're right. She's not really much of a character, but 
it's how she plays with plays with Kay. And like, regardless if it's her programming or choices that the AI makes, that it's something that creates a connection for Kay to feel a little bit more than just a robot or a pre-programmed creature that's having to punch in for his job, do his job, come home, eat something, shower, and go back to his job. That he has other things beyond what he's expected to that he can actually interact with, connect to, and actually um, have more of a quote-unquote human connection and actually have a human existence out of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, her, her, her presence in the film was significant and was not wasteful, but I guess I'm just kind of bored of uh, the concept of, you know, someone finding love through an AI in the film. And it's not just her. Um, it's not just... Um, oh, gosh. What's that animated film starring H. John Benjamin? Archer. Archer. <laughs> Archer. I was going to say Bob's Burger. Krieger has, a, has an AI that, he's, that he has a weird sexual relationship with. Um, yeah, it's not just those films. I just feel like it's kind of a, a, a trope at this point. And the Blade Runner, like the original Blade Runner, and even this one to an extent, was a lot about breaking what the audience expected a sci-fi thriller to be. Um, so it was just one character that took up a lot of the movie that was just really kind of telegraphed and expected um, in terms of how it, her, her specific character played out. Um, but yeah, that's probably that's probably the, the the limit on the things that I felt about this movie that were just not that great. Mm-hmm. Um, for Warren, he too agreed with our for our earlier sentiment about the, the music being too loud. He thought the music was too loud. So Blue and I hope you have a long conversation with him about about that later on. I thought the music was too awesome, but that's my personal opinion. <laughs> the uh, the music was very loud in the first film. Uh, as well, and so I was kind of expecting it. Um, it was definitely too loud, though. And and Hans Zimmer is a little bit more of a flamboyant composer than uh, Vangelis was for that film, and so you know he has the pedagogy to like, hey, I'm Hans Zimmer, let me stick out a little bit more. Versus, I think Vangelis' score really like sat in the pocket, let's say, and didn't oversco- uh, overshadow anything else. So. Yeah. Warren also felt that the film was inconsistent in how it portrayed a replicant's ability to feel pain. Um, I guess he's, he's, his sentiment was that, you know, Ryan Gosling gets beat up and winds up with, like, a swollen face and cuts and bloody, but never really shows, like, anything hurts him, as opposed to someone like... Matthew Batista or David Batista's character who gets hit in the throat and then like rides on the floor choking. Um, I I don't know. Do you guys feel like that was inconsistent or do you guys think that? No, I mean, I think things are going to swell regardless if you feel pain or not. I mean, if there's blood vessels there and you put pressure on them, then yeah, they're going to inflate after having pressure applied to them. And if the pain receptors are there, then you'll feel pain. If they're not, then you won't. And it goes or back to- if you just ignore those, if you have the programming, since you're a Blade Runner and your job is to go in and kind of get into some physical altercations with upper 
other replicants that had the same strength as you, you might have had your nerve receptacles reduced. So you can actually take that punishment. Or Receptacle or, reduction is a major surgery in the future. Very popular. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, there's people in real life who have, like, limited nerve endings in, like, their extremities. And, like, they can't feel that sort of stuff. So if you're genetically designing and programming, like, this ultimate replicant killer, why would you not make them not feel pain? Yeah. Do you think love feels pain? I think they all feel pain. I just think that they all are capable of not acknowledging it. That sounds yeah. like the worst song of the 1980s. <laughs> Do you think love feels pain? Love quick, feels pain. <laughs> quick flashback to 1998. Uh, that was directly taken from my live journal entry at that time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Awesome. Well, as with every episode... Um, we always end talking about our grades for the film and our overall lasting thoughts. Um, I want to start off with Warren's, just to put it out there. Warren gives this film an A+, and he says, I loved all the sci-fi elements that are in here. I love the throwback scenes and the tributes. Really well done sequel. So that's Warren's take. Um, Blewett, what do you think? Yeah, I think I give this... This is a conditional B. So I... I totally had a long day of work before I saw this movie. I had a longer day of work before I saw the original. And, like, the original did not resonate as well with me as I thought it was going to. Um, because it's... it's You have to buy in. You literally have to be prepared to sit your butt down and think about, like, life itself. Um, and so... I think that on second or third viewings with like varied states of stress and wine, you know, they kind of counteract each other. Um, I think that this movie would fluctuate, but based on where it is, it was very well done. I don't know if I could sit down and watch it again immediately though. Unlike our previous, our guest from our last episode, Matt Gray, who, like, absolutely just could watch that every minute of his life, it sounded like. I don't... I, I'd have to be in a very specific mood to watch this movie again. Yeah. That being said, it was very, very well done. Cool. Conditional B from Blewett. Brian, what about you? Uh, I'm going to have to give it an A+. Plus. Uh, I mean, it pays respects to the original film, and it elevates its themes, and... The original film is a very unique film unto itself that generated a lot of uh, cultural relevance, whether it's sci-fi or thinking about how we should approach um, artificial intelligence and uh, gene manipulation in the future. Um, that is continues to build that conversation and actually have that conversation continue in some more interesting ways and. Uh, have you think a little bit more deeper about it? Um, there's some very amazing moments in this film, that, whether it's the uh, syncing with the replicant and the AI for the sex scene, or if it's for um, just the moment of Deckard meeting his daughter, or the moment of the um, of uh, just seeing this, the visual scenes of just seeing Los Angeles for the first time in this futuristic, what they call a dystopian future, but like when I see a lot of life and 
a lot of interesting elements going on. I think like, hey, there, there's still a glimmer of hope in this kind of bleak future that they're actually showing off. Um, that, um, I mean, I have to say this is an amazing film. And um, lastly, what I would say is like, going forward, I mean, when we look at Blade Runner, this was a financial disaster. It wasn't the first film that came out in the movie theaters isn't what the director intended. He even came back and made his own cut to actually say, this is what I actually meant for my film to be. Uh, and it's, uh, it's telling to see that there's still like paying respect to this film to this day that, uh, they gave it this type of care and nuance to continue this type of conversation. And, um, it's, uh, it's really telling that uh, that Denny Villeneuve took as much care as he did for this film. Um, and there's one other thing I wanted to mention, but oh yeah, like I know Blue mentioned this, but also yeah, when Rachel is revealed at the end, like the clone of Rachel, that's a mind blowing scene that like how well technology has become to actually be able to bring back something from the past like that as well but uh yeah fantastic movie overall awesome in the future i probably would like to read a book for the next blade runner story i don't need a film i need a book or some other type of medium to be explored you should go back and read some of the books that came out after the original that tell the continuing story of deckard i should yeah absolutely (laughs) awesome well from me that's the last to go. I have to say that this film is an A. Um, I can't fairly give this movie the plus, um, but it was a remarkable piece of cinema um, that I believe, much like its predecessor, will not be fully appreciated in its time. Um, I think this is definitely a film that, A, people are going to be led to the theaters to under the wrong assumptions because of the trailers. Um, and I also think that, B, it's a film that will just age as time goes on, assuming they let it age, as opposed to making it into like a three-movie tri- trilogy where you know we get a new Blade Runner film every two to three years. Um, I hope not too, and that's a weird thing to say because I do like this, like this, um, this the Blade Runner brand. Mm-hmm. But I think its power comes from it telling a specific story, and I think that it'll age better if it doesn't have any other sequels to come to muddle it up. Well, um, but who knows? Maybe it will have sequels, and maybe I'll be proven completely wrong. But one one thing I'd like to say is they actually did themselves a benefit, in our opinions, because they killed Gosling. So they now have to start <laughs> over for a male lead, completely from scratch, which takes time. So where was the adventures of Doctor Stelline and her? Bubble. Yeah, I don't think they need a male lead. Fluid, <laughs> I'm a feminist, and I think that Stelline would be a great main character. You still need a male lead. You had a female lead. Uh, they they have female leads, which is the good thing. Harrison Ford is male. We know that's still alive. He is. He that. is. He is <laughs> transcendent to gender. He is just ultimate sex appeal. <laughs> awesome. Well, with that, we are the Down in Front podcast, and we are a collective of individuals who all have interesting social media presences other elsewhere so let's go through that a bit brylan where can we find more of what makes you you 
Uh, you can find Miracles Happen at Bryland, B-R-I-L-U-N-D, on Twitter, uh, where I say funny things as well. Um, you can find my many movie, uh, movie and TV show reviews on Instagram at I am Bryland, and uh, I am the host of the Gamescast, twitch.tv slash Down in Front Podcast. We just started uh, playing Until Dawn, which is a horror show, uh, or horror video game that um, stars Hayden Panettiere, I think that's how you pronounce her last name, and she gets into a bathtub, and it's pretty scary. What? <laughs> Did you not get that? Wait, is the bathtub scary or is her? Is, is, is Hayden Panettiere? That moment's pretty scary. Like you made that picture of her in the bathtub with the clown in the back, and yeah. when that moment happened, I was like, "Oh shit!" There's a clown in the background that he just turns around and walks away and closes the door. <laughs> no one wants to run into a clown in the dark, but when you're taking a like a nice calm bath, that is probably one of the worst times. That and, like, mid-coitus are the worst times for a clown to appear. I'm fine with yes. that, mid-coitus, because we're just describing fictional awesome. opportunities. Well, thanks, bro. Anyways, uh, um, Blue, it. Blue it, how about yourself? Where can we find more of you being you? Yeah, uh, yeah so, I mean, honestly, like, I really don't do the social media thing on my own, but I run some social media for a band I'm in that you have probably heard me talk about, unless this is your first podcast, in which case, congratulations, welcome to the Downfront Podcast. Um, you can find us at uh, Minus Music or Minus Band on most major platforms. We're also playing a couple shows, we usually try and play at least once a month at some local Boston bars, so if you're in the area, definitely check us out, um, we'd love to have you pay money to see us. Um, yeah, that's about it. I got nothing good. As for myself, you can find me on Twitter uh, at MochaMikeLI, as the Lord intended. Unfortunately, you cannot find me at MochaMike because the person who currently holds that is an ageless, unempathetic robot who just won't die. Um, Until he does, I can't have that name. So please follow me at MochaMikeLI. You can also see some of the photography work I do um, at Instagram. My username is MochaMike. And you can also follow me on Medium, where I post some long-form reviews of the films that we talk about here, as well as some other topics that um, pique my interest. That's medium.com slash at MochaMike. Again, it's medium.com slash at MochaMike. I think, um, do, you, do you have an email, though? Uh, was it, like, Jesse's just looking to breed at ymail.com? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep, that's it. Um, <laughs> You can email us at Jesse's Just Looking to Breed at wildmail.com or you can get to us at Jesse's Protein Farm <laughs> at gmail.com. One or the other. Either way, he oh, will find you. Oh, get him. <laughs> oh, God. And we are the Down in Front Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on this journey through Blade Runner 2049. We couldn't have been happier having you listen to us. Um, please give us a shout-out online. As Blewett said, we're going to put up a Twitter poll asking for comments about what your thoughts are on the human condition. Um, but until then, uh, we will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Pew, 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 pew. Bye.